0: Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency, whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious. I am your host, Alicia Chapman, and today on the pod, we have Matt Lysing, who I am so excited to chat with, especially at the moment. Matt, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Matt, I loved reading about your background. Now, a few of our listeners may already know you from your incredible book that you have published, which is called Out of the Ether. But before that, you actually worked at Bloomberg for 17 years and had some really cool articles published in that time, kind of like founding. You know, I, I've looked back, and some of those articles were ones that I read when I was first starting to figure out what crypto was and how to understand this whole world. So really, really cool to see that. And of course, you've got your company, Decentral Media as well, which is doing some really cool stuff in the space.
1: Yeah, well, that's great. I, I love hearing that. Thank you.
0: And so talk to us about that journey for you. Looking back on those years ago, was this kind of a path that you thought you would naturally end up on or how has it come to be?
1: No, crypto kind of fell into my lap, I guess you, know, you would say, I, as you said, I was working for Bloomberg News, started there in 2004, quickly got into the financial crisis and everything that went you know, completely south with the global economy. I had been like covering markets and how they work or how they don't work. Uh, the beat was called market structure. So it's basically how banks and their customers, like asset managers and hedge funds, how they all interact in different markets, like futures, derivatives, the bond market. And so, obviously, there was a huge meltdown in 2008. One of the big problems there was the -the over-the-counter derivatives market, which was unregulated and sort of helped fuel the fire and, like, make everything worse um, when all the banks started to go down because nobody knew who held these contracts. There was no tracking. It was a private market. It was, like, peer-to-peer. So, that was a huge problem and, you know, went through the crisis. And then, obviously, there had to be a response. And the response in the United States was the Dodd-Frank Act, which set about regulating the over-the-counter derivatives market. and the swaps market. Like you might remember credit default swaps were a huge problem. So I went through all of that and, and really, you know, kind of was thrown into the fire, I guess, um, to figure out how all of that stuff worked. And then a couple of years later, Bitcoin came out, obviously 2009. I wasn't aware of it too much then, but a few years later, I finally kind of wrapped my head around what Bitcoin's genius was, and that was the blockchain underpinning it all. It was this global network of computers that no company or government could stop. And so, you know, it's a global payments network that's unstoppable, which, you know, a lot of people will say it's all a scam. But to me, that's incredibly valuable and something that's never existed before. So coming from Wall Street and knowing how the banks and their customers work, you know, they're also networks and they're trading trillions of dollars every day back and forth amongst themselves. And I realized, well, if that blockchain idea could be applied to finance, it would be a game changer. And so I said to my editor at the time in early 2015, hey, I want to cover blockchain. He's like, great. What's blockchain? Um, So it, it, it still was pretty early for the mainstream press to be getting in on this, but you know, it really just sort of the light bulb over the top of my head was Wall Street is incredibly inefficient and there are a lot of middlemen and what Bitcoin and what blockchains do really well is eliminate those middlemen and allow you to go peer to peer in Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, it's a trustless transaction. You don't have to know who's on the other side of your transaction because that network of computers is going to make sure that everything's valid before anything goes through. So that was really kind of where I came into it and then I came across Ethereum very soon after in early 2016, then the DAO became a big deal and, you know, there was $250 million in the DAO and it was hacked in the middle of 2016. That was just like one of the most fascinating things I'd ever seen in finance and, you know, we kind of got to watch it in real time. And that sort of led me even further down the path. And I ended up writing a magazine story about the folks that on the Ethereum side who helped rescue the money that hadn't been stolen. They're called the Robin Hood Group or, or White Hat Hackers. Uh, that led to my book. And, you know, I thought to myself, this is a really dramatic kind of event. And I could probably string that event throughout the whole book and then in alternating chapters tell the history of Ethereum and talk about Vitalik Buterin and how he created it and all the people who gathered around him to make Ethereum real. So that, that was the genesis of that. Um, my book came out, I think in late 2021 and just been sort of like geeking out and just loving the space uh, ever since.
0: I love that. And the book itself is incredible. It's actually now being made into a documentary, which is phenomenal and so exciting to see. For that, you, you touched on, and it's in the title of the book, you know, the $55 million heist, which is, of course, what you're referring to there with the Dow. If someone hasn't heard that story before, could you give us a really high level sort of overview of what happened?
1: Yeah, sure. So back in early 2016, when the DAO came out, Ethereum was still very new. It wasn't even a year old. And all these teams, you know, that wanted to build on top of Ethereum, all the developer teams, they had different ideas of what kind of applications they wanted to build. And of course, you need money for that. So this guy named Christoph Gents was at one of those startups called Slocket. They had a smart lock that they wanted to, to put on top of Ethereum, where you could use the blockchain to like scan a QR code on a bike in Amsterdam, and it would go through and then the bike would unlock when you pay it like one ETH, you know, you'd get, to use that bike for an hour. And that was their idea. So it's a smart lock. It's Lockit. As they were going through the like development process and realizing they needed money to make this a reality, they realized that everyone around them also needed money. So the idea that Christoph had and the other guys at Lockit was, let's not all do this like individually. Let's do one big kind of digital venture capital fund. And that's what the Dow became. So the idea was you would send your ether to the DAO, you'd get a DAO token in return. And then when projects presented themselves to the token holders, they would vote and say, yeah, we, we think that's a great project for Ethereum. Here's some money, go spend a year and come back to us when it's done. So it was really kind of like taking a traditional finance idea of a venture capital fund, but bringing it into the blockchain world. And so a really good idea, um, it was a bit early. and. What happened was, unknowingly, Christoph had written a bug into the code, and shockingly enough, the the line of code that the bug was in was line 666. And what it allowed was for an attacker to come in and basically just steal all the money from the DAO. And so that started on a Friday in June of 2016. And everybody just had to sit there and watch as this money got drained out of the Dow. There was nothing they could do because once you deploy a smart contract to Ethereum, it's very hard to change it. It takes weeks and takes a lot of coordination. And you can't just like press the off button. So first of all, they had to figure out how to stop the guy from stealing the money. That's where the Robinhood group came in. They kind of replicated the attack and quickly stole, quote unquote, the rest of the money and kind of like kept it safe. And then the rest of the community sort of had a decision to make about like, is this okay? And there was a big debate about what to do. What the decision was, was that they would do a hard fork and they would change the blockchain history so that the Dow contract was changed and that bug no longer existed. The money was still there. And then if you had your money stolen or you just had money in it in, in general, you could go and get your money back. So that's a very high level version of it. I'm sorry, but you know, it's, it's a pretty complicated story. And then um, the really weird part is that at that moment when the hard fork happened, people kept mining on the old chain and that was not expected. And so Ethereum Classic was born and we have Ethereum Classic to this day. So the Ethereum Classic blockchain it actually holds the original DAO contract on it. And I, I go about it a little bit slower in my book, but yeah, that's kind of the TLDR.
0: Is such a good summary, and I think there would have been a few things there that people are learning for the first time. Like you know, a lot of people know about the hard fork, but perhaps not why all of that eventuated and how it came to be. So I, I love the way that you explain that and so easily to understand as well. With that happening, I know there's still chatter today, even even with what's happening with the merge coming up as we're recording. We're still on the countdown. Do you think that we could see something like that happen again?
1: There's talk of some miners in Ethereum that want to keep. The proof-of-work blockchain, we haven't even really gotten into what the difference is here with the merge. Um, so just real quickly, what the merge is going to do is switch Ethereum from a proof-of-work consensus system to a proof-of-stake consensus system. So proof-of-work is where you have miners and they have all this really expensive hardware and they're running computers 24-7 to try to be the first one to validate the latest batch of transactions, which we call a block, if they do that correctly they get free ether they get free bitcoin that's the kind of economic model ethereum is moving off of that going to proof of stake where you have now a whole bunch of people who have put instead of like buying hardware and putting in like uh, investing computing power into the network they're putting up their own ether so it's it's like their own capital and they're staking it and so you you have this enormous amount of staked ether that is now securing the network and so you still run a node, and you're now called a validator, and you have a chance of being the validator who confirms the latest batch of transactions. And if you do that according to the rules, you get a little bit of free ether. But there's also a stick, and there's a carrot and a stick. The carrot is the free ether. The stick is if you do something against the network, then you can have some of your ether taken away. So it it just seeks to incentivize everyone who's staking to do the best thing for the network. So there are some people who've said, you know, we want to keep Mining on the proof of work blockchain in Ethereum because they are miners and they have millions of dollars worth of this equipment that they've been using to, you know, in proof of work to secure the network. So they don't want to kind of see that all just like become worthless. So, you know, I can kind of understand the economic incentive they have, but they have a really tough road ahead, in my opinion, if they want to keep mining on the proof of work chain because everything's going to switch over to proof of stake. And and a lot of things that we know of Ethereum, like stable coins and DeFi protocols, aren't going to be supported on the old proof of work chain. So there is a potential for that to maybe happen for a week or a month or something like that. But I really don't expect it to be like the um, situation in 2016 where Ethereum Classic kind of like emerged and is with us to this day.
0: Yeah, And for someone that hasn't looked backwards into what happened after that fork, what was Ethereum Classic being used for? Like, was that something that still had that power? And, and as you said, it's still around today.
1: Well, this is the really interesting thing about forks and crypto. So when Ethereum forked in 2016, and now you had this new chain called Ethereum Classic, if you had any Ether on the old chain, now you had an exact same amount of Ether Classic on the Ether Classic chain. So let's say I had 100 Ether before the fork, then the fork happens and they start mining on the Ethereum Classic chain. Now, all of a sudden, I've also got 100 Ethereum Classic in my wallet. And very soon after this, it started to trade. And it started like um, some exchanges like Poloniex and others listed it um, for trading. So it suddenly had a value. And, you know, around this time, I think Classic went up to around $20 or so. So, you know, like the the guy who sold the 55 million dollars at one point had, you know, millions of dollars worth of ethereum classic in his wallet and so it's a really crazy kind of sci-fi aspect to blockchains that it, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around but that was the main incentive was that, you know, there was money to be made here and i think that people understood that, and that's why I think a lot of the work went into mine on the old chain and and, and keep Ethereum Classic alive. So, as in all of crypto, crypto there's there's always an economic incentive somewhere, and, and that's kind of, you know, you just got to kind of follow the money.
0: Yeah, usually, <laughs> you definitely do. And then with the merge itself, and I guess the changes, being so intertwined with Ethereum and, and understanding its history and evolution to date, do you think that it's going to be enough to keep it competitive, I guess, against, you know, other layer two solutions or other options that people can now use moving forward?
1: I think so. Yeah. Because, you know, there are other blockchains that are gaining traction. Um, Solana, you know, it's got a lot of NFT activity on it. And there are some others, you know, Avalanche is out there as well. It's it's fast. It's a proof of state, stake network to begin with. So, you know, I, I, I think that there's room for all of these different blockchains for different uses. And I think Ethereum has always had an advantage where it's got the majority of developers and teams and people working on it around the world. So it's, you know, it's got critical mass. And I don't think that's going to change. And I think if and when they pull off this proof of stake change, it's just going to kind of bolster the whole community because this has been in the works for pretty much as long as Ethereum has been around Vitalik, always wanted to move to proof of stake. He knew, he just knew that he had to do proof of work for a while until they could get to the, like, because it was technically hard to do it back then. So I think it's going to be a a boost for the community. And I think that um, it's going to help, you know, completely reduce the energy consumption that that the Ethereum blockchain is doing today. Uh, Proof of work uses an enormous amount of energy because of all those computers that have to be running 24-7. So I think that's going to be a good thing for the overall community. And this is going to lead to, to other changes that are going to be made that will make it faster and um, make it able to scale so that they can do, you know, the goal is a couple hundred thousand transactions per second. And then, you know, to try to reach something like Visa that's in the millions. And that, so this is a step in that direction.
0: Yeah. And it is still such an early part of that journey as well, which I think a lot of people heading into this merge just thought that it would be the solution. Like it would be the solution to speed and it would be the solution to gas fees as well, which is another really contentious topic. But it it is still a journey. What do you, I'd love your own, your take on, on gas fees and how that can sort of change moving forward and what the vision is there.
1: Yeah, so that's an important point because it's, this is not going to change gas fees. That's not something that is in the remit of the of the merge. It's really moving to a proof-of-stake network and changing how the consensus works. Um, gas fees, I think people are talking about different layer two solutions and, and different, they're called roll-ups, where you can do a whole bunch of different transactions off-chain and then move them on-chain when you need to, so you're not paying fees for all those different transactions. One of the best metaphors I heard from it is like you run a bar tab, you know, you give the bartender your credit card, and you order a drink, and then you order more drinks, and and they don't, you know, they're not charging every time, you just settle up at the end of the night. And that's kind of the same idea. The first on-chain transaction occurs, and then you do all these following transactions off-chain, so there's no gas fees involved. And then at the end, when you're ready to settle, um, it goes back on chain and then that's how the fees are determined. There is, you know, a lot of work to be done there still. And, then, you know, I, I like to think of it as kind of a good problem because, you know, it the fees are so high because everybody wants to use Ethereum.
0: Yeah. And rollups themselves, I think, are, are really, really interesting does that mean that, you know, the the whole purpose behind, I guess, blockchain in itself is that it's immutable and it's something that is transparent. If you're doing that off-chain, is there still going to be ways in these methods that are being built out that that's going to occur?
1: Well, I think it's not like you can do whatever you want off-chain. You know, you still have to abide by the rules. And, and it's still, I think, in certain parameters, you know, there are parameters around it. Um, I'm not an expert in this, so I don't want to get too far out over my skis, but it is something that, you know, is at the end of the day, when you go back and you want to put these transactions on chain, and you know, it is something that is still checked and I think validated and, and verified. So, you know, that, that's the way that I understand it. Yeah,
0: perfect. And then looking back to your, your book has been published last year, but so much has changed as well, um, you know, especially in the last six months. Is there anything else I guess that you'd add if someone's read your book and now they're looking at this now in terms of what you've seen and the observations you've made recently?
1: Yeah, I mean, God, there's there's been so much. There was the DeFi summer where, you know, a lot of decentralized finance protocols came out, um, with a lot of like collateralized lending, a lot of crazy interest rates that you could earn on your crypto. Um, we've seen that kind of crash and burn recently this year. Obviously the NFT craze kind of took the world by storm. So What I like to say to people is, you know, what I think blockchain and and Ethereum are doing is is taking a lot of the traditional financial models that we all know and and changing them, making them into a peer-to-peer decentralized fashion. So one of the first ones was the initial coin offering boom in 2017 and 18, where for the first time... Not really the first time, but, you know, in a, in a way that was like global and in a large scale, if you had a startup and you had an idea, you could go out directly to your potential users and raise money for your startup by selling a coin. That's, you know, was only traditionally done by you could go to a bank or you would go to a venture capital fund and, and try to get money from them to fund your idea and your startup. Now you could go directly to people all around the world who wanted to buy your coin and you could raise millions of dollars in minutes, as we saw. Um, Of course, a lot of that was scams and just a lot of people lost a lot of money. But it doesn't change the fact that that was a whole new way of now raising money to start a business. So to raise capital, that's a huge deal in in traditional finance and one of the main functions of a bank. Then you get to the DeFi summer phase where it's now I want to borrow money and I'm going to use my um, crypto as collateral. And so that's another huge change where that was always, you know, a bank would be involved and, and so collateralized lending is now being done um, in a peer-to-peer fashion. With NFTs, for the first time in history, you've got a digital file. Uh, maybe it's a picture or a bit of a song or um, some artwork that is now scarce. Because as we all know, in, in the history of you know the internet and computers, a digital file can be replicated and sent out a million times to anybody. But now when you can attach that to a blockchain and prove its provenance and prove the ownership record... It suddenly becomes scarce and it becomes collectible and it gives it a value. So whatever that value is will be decided by the market, just like in the art market, you know, um, one person's, you know, masterpiece is another person's piece of trash. But for the first time, these digital files are now scarce. And so I think that's something that's, it's, it's hard to sink in for a lot of people. It hasn't sunk in for a lot of people, but it is something that is changing. The way that a lot of artists work because they're now in charge of and and like in charge of their own financing in a way where now artists can sell nfts to raise money to make their next album or to make their next film or a visual artist might be selling nfts to further their career and the cool thing about nfts is you can program them so that every time they're sold afterwards you get a cut of that and in, in royalties and that's never been the case so uh, uh, you know an artist would sell a painting for twenty bucks, and then it becomes a masterpiece, and they never get any of those on sales. So it's it's a really fascinating kind of thing, and, and I love how it's brought a lot of artists and musicians and, and creative people into blockchain. Because for a while there, it was it was a little um, you know full of computer programmers and, and kind of like you know nerdy folks.
0: Yeah. And there was kind of, you know, that that incentive, I guess, to be there was really if you love the technology behind it, whereas that real world utility and the things that we've seen come out of that, like, you know, we've got some incredible episodes around how NFTs are being used in the sporting world and the music world. And there's just so much potential there in particular for future as well. What area are you focusing on now or or I guess most intrigued by?
1: Well, it's essential where we've got some different verticals. We have a full-time reporter who just reports on where music and Web3 are intersecting, because that's a huge area right now where um, a lot of artists are realizing they might not need their record company anymore. We're we're doing the same thing with entertainment and Web3, because a lot of people in Hollywood were slow to, to pick up on this. And so, you know, we have like interviews with Julie Pacino, who's Al Pacino's daughter, and she's financing her next movie with a sale of NFTs and she's like an amazing photographer and she just took photos on set as they were rehearsing and, and filming and, and she was able to sell those and she said it's just completely freed her up um, for you know not having to, to try to get financing from a studio or from private backers and so there's a lot of freedom there for artists to, to kind of self-finance which I think is fascinating you know and then we're also just staying on the whole like we just love the people in this space they're so fascinating and there's so many great stories to tell And so that's kind of where I come in. I just, you know, I've known people in Ethereum for a long time and I just love sitting down with them and finding out where they came from and and how they got into crypto and what they're doing today. Because nine times out of 10, they've got some crazy, wacky story and they're really smart and they're weird and funny. And it's just, you know, that's the reason I wanted to start Decentral in the first place, because I didn't think that that community was getting served. And I felt like it was a disservice to, to all the really fascinating people that I've met over the years.
0: Yeah. And I think the the community aspect as well, like one of my favorite parts is is getting the feedback from this community as well, where people listen to the episode and they'll have like this light bulb idea and this light bulb moment where they're like, oh my God, I could use this in this way. Like we're all pioneering, we're all creating here. And sometimes it's, you know, you've got to listen to things in different ways, like that film, Venture Capital. Like if, if you think about back to where that was, same with record labels, they always put so many contingencies Mm. on the creators and they always you know want to change it and mold it and shape it so it fits in with the label whereas if you get to truly create that for yourself it's either going to be terrible or it's going to be really really good and it's going to be something that we've never seen before because they've just always been placed in these boxes so i think that and especially like the vc world as well is so exciting
1: yeah i know exactly what you're saying like in um, the music business the financing terms that record companies will give to artists are just awful they're like you know The the interest rates are exorbitant. It's almost like you can never kind of work out of your deal to make any money. And then you have to go back to them if you want to make the next record. And so that's why I think music NFTs and and the music world is really gravitating to Web3 because they've been in it and they've been getting screwed over for decades. And it's like, finally, they have the option of doing something different.
0: Amazing. And we had a a chat with someone who um, is part of Steve Aoki's community a few weeks ago, Lisa Tay. And she went over and was chatting to him and the money that he's been able to make, you know, he would never, ever be able to see that in in his music career, which is insane that an NFT can do that. So, you know, whilst we have had quite a crazy last few six months and 12 months before that, and we have seen some conditions that might not be the same in the future, it is just pivoting things and allowing people to challenge them as well, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah. And I think it creates a new relationship between the artist and their fan because the fan can you know, they don't just buy an NFT and then like go away. They, you know, it usually will give them some inside access or, you know, like they can talk to the artist or they can join a discord with them or they'll get special behind the scenes kind of stuff from making of the album, or they might have a chance to, you know, go backstage at a concert. And and I think artists have always wanted to connect with their fans in ways, but then, you know, maybe record companies were there and, and it just wasn't possible, but now it's opening doors to all these new possibilities. And I think that it just, you know, from that point of view, it looks, it looks really good to me.
0: Yeah, it is. One of my personal favorites to, to talk about and to also learn about as well. I love that. And the music place is is really interesting. Is there any other, I guess, projects in the Web3 world or, or other things that are going on that you're excited about at the moment?
1: Well, I think, you know, we're in a bear market. And so what was interesting in the last cycle that we went through was after 2017, 2018, you know, everything crashed and then it got really quiet and I got the book deal and I was starting to report on my book in early 2019 And it was a really bad bear market. Ethereum, like Ether was down to around a hundred dollars and it just stayed there for months and months and had a bit of buyer's remorse. I'm like, Oh my God, am I going to be writing this book? Um, Is it going to be like the obituary of Ethereum? And then of course what happened behind the scenes was everybody just kept building and doing what they were doing. And then in about a year or so DeFi summer came around and all these new protocols came out and Uniswap came out and all this like crazy stuff. And so what I'm thinking right now is I'm, I'm, I don't think that there's a reason to think that's not happening again, that people are just kind of putting their heads down and building. There's been a shakeout, you know, with some of the like frothy kind of investors who maybe weren't in it for any reason, except to try to make a quick buck. So I think what I'm hoping is in the next, you know, six months or so to a year, you know, a whole new kind of wave of something comes out. I I wish I knew what it was, but, um, at this point I, I couldn't say, but I think it's continually been surprising to me, all the great stuff and cool things that people are coming up with. Like you said, people just, once they kind of get their head around it, they're like, Oh, this could solve a problem that I've had for a long time. And this little, Part of my world, and I think it's a, in general a pretty welcoming community, and people want to help each other. So I think that's one reason why there's been so much innovation and collaboration.
0: Yeah, and I think well, you know, as you touched on, that we we are in a bear market at the moment. We have gone through cycles, but the most exciting thing for me, particularly at the moment, is that we had so much adoption, like mainstream adoption, last bear, bull market, and so that meant that there's a whole heap of people that perhaps don't come from a development background who now have been exposed to this technology. And and yes, maybe they got in it for the money and the quick wins at the start. But there are those that have really, as you said, opened their eyes and been able to see that there's so much potential here. And that's when we might see something even more exciting and, and different come out of this run now, which I, I can't wait to see what it is as well.
1: Yeah, I can't wait as well.
0: Matt, there's been so much that we've learned today from you. And I think just a different perspective on Ethereum as well, which has been really nice to understand how this all came to be and and what actually brought us to the day that we are living in right now, just before the merge. Um, For those that have loved this, perhaps want to read a little bit more about your book and follow along with your own podcast, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, we're at decentral.io. That's d e c e n t i a l.io. I have a special edition of my book. It's an NFT version, and that's out of the ether.net. We're on Twitter at decentral media, or uh, I'm on Twitter as well, just at matt leising.
0: Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us, and guys, that book it is phenomenal. If you haven't got your hands on a copy yet, make sure you jump into the show notes and check it out. Matt has very kindly given us a discount code that you can use as well for twenty five off. So that will be in the show notes for you guys to grab. And Matt, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We will talk to you very soon.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Alicia.